Good morning and welcome to Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm your host, Daniel Montano. Medical aid in dying has been legal in New Mexico since 2021. Since then, experts estimate more than 200 terminally ill New Mexicans have ended their lives. First, they waited the mandatory 48 hours before filling a prescription. Then they drank a prescribed medication and soon after drifted off to sleep before their bodies shut down. The law has had its fair share of controversy, though, and certainly wasn't adopted without debate. In fact, that debate is still ongoing in the Roundhouse and the Courthouse. Some doctors, groups, and politicians are arguing or offering ethical for offering ethical exemptions for practitioners with moral objections. And there's a, both a bill in the Senate and a separate bill in the House right now seeking to amend the Elizabeth Whitefield End of Life Options Act. And there's even a lawsuit over it in federal district court. Today on Let's Talk New Mexico, we are discussing all things medical aid in dying here in the land of enchantment. And of course, dear listener, we want to hear from you. Give us your thoughts and opinions. Call us at 505-277-5866 or use the hashtag Let's Talk NM, all one word, to send us a tweet or shoot us an email. You can email Let's Talk at KUNM.org and tell us what you think of medical aid in dying. Do you see it as a right to choose your own path, or do you think doctors should be allowed to bow out of offering referrals to the program? Again, give us a call, 505-277-5866. That's 277-KUNM. To help me with today's conversation, we have quite a few guests joining us, and they come from not only around the state, but from across the country. From Santa Fe, State Rep for House District 15 in Bernalillo County, Day Hawkman Hill is joining us via Zoom. Good morning, and thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us this morning, Representative. It's a pleasure to have you. Good morning. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. Also joining us via Zoom is Dr. Jeffrey Barrows. He is a doctor of osteopathic medicine and senior vice president of bioethics and public policy with the Christian Medical and Dental Associations. He joins us uh, over Zoom. Thanks for being a part of the conversation. Glad to be here, and thanks for inviting me. Perfect. Thank you. And we also have Chris Shandevel, who is a senior counsel with the Alliance for Defending Freedom. The ADF is a national legal organization that describes itself as, quote, committed to protecting religious freedom, free speech, the sanctity of life, parental rights, rights, and God's design for marriage and family. Chris joins us now. Thank you for being on the show this morning. Good morning, Daniel. Thanks so much for having me on. Here in studio, we have Dr. Jacqueline O'Neill. She is an MD, an internist, and head of UNM Hospital's Medical Aid and Dying Program. Good morning, doctor. Thanks for coming into the studio. Good morning. Thanks for having me today. And lastly, again, joining us over the phone this time is Jill Von Austin. She is vice chair for End of Life Options New Mexico. That's a nonprofit organization whose self-proclaimed mission is to, quote, provide information to and support for all end of life options, including medical aid in dying. Thanks so much for talking with us this morning. Nice to be here, Daniel. Thank you. And actually, I'd like to start with you, Jill, if we could. Um, First, tell me a little bit about yourself and the organization you work with. I'd love to. I um, live in Rio Rancho, New Mexico, and um, together with five others on the End of Life Options New Mexico Board of Directors. And as you mentioned, we're a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and we're about to celebrate our second birthday next month. Um, As you mentioned, we we do provide information and support for all end-of-life options. We like to emphasize the S there, but um, including medical aid in dying. And, you know, our motto is uh, quality of life at the end of life. We really hope that at the end of life we have quality days, you know, and that, of course, has a different meaning for each of us. And we hope um, to help people so that they can have the quality of life they wish at the end of their life. Well, again, thank you for being here. And I actually spoke with a colleague of yours not too long ago. Um, That was Mary Kay Brady. She is the secretary and treasurer for End of Life Options New Mexico. And she gave me some background and a little context on medical aid and dying in general. Here is a portion of that interview to give you a little of that context as well. Mary Kay is an end of life doula. I'll let her explain what that means. I'm a bedside attendant where people are utilizing medical aid and dying after serious consideration. And I try to um, give the warm and fuzzy side of death and dying because it is, it can be warm and fuzzy and compassionate. 
Why don't you, well, first off, tell me a little bit about the history of medical aid in dying here. Let's say the last I really heard of it was about Dr. Kevorkian or, you know, I heard about that in the news. What would you, what would be the first thing you would tell me about this? Really and truly, uh, Oregon brought this uh, to the forefront in about 1997. Mm -hmm. And it didn't move real rapidly. Eventually, Washington State came on board. And when our law became effective, we were number 11. We are the 11th jurisdiction in the U.S. that supports medical aid in dying. But just to kind of backtrack for a minute, when we talk about end-of-life options New Mexico, and we talk about that S, we're more than just a support group and a nonprofit for medical aid in dying. We spend the bulk of our time doing advocacy and outreach work to encourage people to have their advanced directives, their advanced care plan, and to have a designated individual to have a durable power of attorney to be their proxy for healthcare decisions. A lot of our work is education, and that S in choices is people are not aware of choices that they have that they can forgo or stop treatment just because you're clinician has said, you know, you have to do this. We have the right as patients to forego or cease treatment, to look for palliative care, taking care and trying to make you comfortable. Hospice care is another wonderful, wonderful facility. It's a care practice that provides comfort, not only for the the patient, but also the family. And then there's a little known choice, and that's VSED, which is just an acronym for voluntarily stopping eating and drinking. Totally legal in any state, in any jurisdiction, and it gives the person an opportunity to end their life in a peaceful fashion where they don't qualify for medical aid and die. Daniel, medical aid and dying is not for everyone. It has really stringent requirements. As far as New Mexico's law is, you must be over the age of 18. You must be a resident of New Mexico. You must have a diagnosis of a terminal disease that in the minds of medical professionals, clinicians, you have six months or less to live. You must be mentally capable of making your own health care decision, and you must be capable of self-administering the medication. Those are some pretty stringent requirements, and the other jurisdictions are similar. We have a bit of difference in one regard, in a couple of regards. One of them is that our law allows for physician assistants as well as advanced practice nurses to be considered providers and be able to write that prescription. And I think that's a big deal. When you're nearing the end of your life, the last thing you want to do is drive around looking for clinicians and providers to help you. It's not a good thing. So that really is helping. Another point that I would always make is that our regulation says that once the provider has determined that all the qualifications have been met, they can write the prescription. The prescription cannot be filled for 48 hours, and that's the only waiting period. Does insurance ever pay for this, or is this the sort of thing that uh, money is a barrier for access for people? Well, it could be. Now, on the VSED side, your clinician, whatever, whoever your mm-hmm. provider was, is still going to be available to right. you. Yeah. Um, as far as the medical aid in dying, there's a prohibition for federal funds to be used. Okay. So typically, we're talking about older people like me. I mean, I'm 76. I'm on Medicare. Medicare would pay for my provider to do advanced care planning with me to work out doing the most form, that bright green medical order for scope of treatment. All of that would be covered under the clinician's end-of-life counseling with me. The medication, and I probably should squash that, it is not a pill. (laughs) It's not that easy. It it is a compounded medication. So no, you're not going to go to Walgreens and say, give me that medical aid and dying medication. Not going to happen. Very specific kind of compounding pharmacy is required. Um, That medication, I guess we've had a bit of a price war uh, when our law first became effective in April. Uh, excuse me, in June of 2021, um, the medication was $700. It's running about 550 now. So we've had a, a bit of a price for it. I was reading something in California, the medication is $1,200. 
Again, that was Mary Kay Brady with End of Life Options New Mexico. We do have Jill Von Austin, who is vice chair with End of Life Options, with us today. However, um, we do already have a caller this morning, and I would like to move to them now. We have Glenn from Hamas Springs on the line. Glenn, um, why don't you go ahead and uh, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. What's your comment? Uh, yeah, I had a mother who was in independent living and then assisted living at Albuquerque Grand in Albuquerque. For 14 years, she reached a point where she had to be moved to a nursing home where we put her on hospice. After a year of hospice um, and after a year of her praying to die at uh, 95, um, she was on oxygen, and it just seemed to me it would have been uh, compassionate uh, for the system, for hospice, for a family member to take her off of oxygen and allow her to die. Um, and I'm glad that New Mexico now is providing what you've been talking about. Um, I'll be 79 here shortly, and, and um, I'm glad to be in New Mexico where that is an option. Thank you. Thank you so much, Glenn, and I think that's a perfect example of why we're having this show today. Um, And actually, I'd like to move now to quite a busy woman. She's sponsoring more than 30 bills between both houses in the current legislative session, including an amendment to the original act in question today. Representative Day Hockman V. Hill, tell me a bit about the Elizabeth Whitefield End of Life Options Act. Take me back to 2019 and give me a summary of the events leading up to the bill's passage and why you wanted to be involved. Um, You sponsored the act from the beginning, correct? Um, That is somewhat correct. Um, We can't be having this conversation without first um, talking about and honoring representative, former representative Debbie Armstrong, who um, was the main sponsor of the Elizabeth uh, Whitefield End of of Life Options Act um, for several different cycles. I think it took us three different sessions, legislative sessions, to get the law through. And so um, Debbie was just an absolute soldier dedicated to the cause. And um, I came on to assist her with passage of the act the third time. Um, I, uh, I watched both of my parents die of cancer. Um, they were in a, in a horribly painful and um, a, a lack of Sorry, trying to keep it together here without crying on the radio, but um, a lack of dignity. There was a lack of dignity in the way that both of my parents were forced to die of cancer. And so that's when I uh, decided I was going to become involved with the act. And um, with my help, Debbie and I were able to get it through. Okay. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for sharing that, Representative Day Hockman V. Hill. Um, This is Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUNM. Just a reminder to our listeners, we are taking your questions. You can call 505-277-5866 or email letstalk at KUNM.org, just like this listener did. Rick says he got into a bicycle accident that left him with damage to his shoulder, his lung, his nerves, and his spine, including, quote, four discs that completely blew out. Doctors prescribed him oxycodone for the pain, but he says he felt overprescribed. His daughter had a similar experience with medication, and he says he is all for medical aid in dying, but thinks the quest for profits from drug companies holds too much power and influence. Let us know your take on the topic. Send us a tweet with the hashtag Let's Talk NM or call 505-277-5866. I'm Daniel Montano. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm Daniel Montano. We're taking your calls about medical aid in dying. Give us a call at 505-277-5866 or email letstalk at kunm.org and tell us your take. You can also send us the tweet using the hashtag letstalknm. I'd like to continue with you, Representative. Uh, I understand you have committee meetings scheduled directly after this up at the Roundhouse, correct? Correct. Thank you so much for being conscious of, of that. I have a, a committee that I do chair and they'd be pretty lost um, if they all gathered in the in the meeting room and their chair lady wasn't there. So thank you. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks again uh, for squeezing us in. Speaking of, we do have another guest who's on a tight schedule this morning and needs to leave on time. So for part of this show, uh, this part of the show, purely to ensure all parties have an equal chance to say their piece, I might interrupt any of our guests cutting you off. If I do so, 
so, again, please understand it's only to make sure all parties have a chance to speak. That being said, I am, of course, flexible, and I want to have a positive conversation that encourages productive debate and critical thinking. And I'm willing to go with the flow and have a natural conversation, so I'm hoping I don't have to cut anyone off. Anyhow, with uh, housekeeping aside, let's come back to you, Representative Day Hawkman v. Hill. We've just discussed a bit of the history of the act um, and how it came to become law. Um, tell me a little bit first about who, who exactly was Elizabeth Whitefield? Elizabeth Whitefield was uh, a cherished member of the legal community. She actually was a judge and she was battling, I, I think, uh, cancer in her larynx for several different years, for several years, and had become uh, an advocate for medical aid in dying and had worked uh, with Representative Debbie Armstrong and me and everyone else who worked on that uh, piece of law to make to, to get it through and to share her story so that people could know exactly, you know, what medical aid and dying is and why she was advocating for it before she lost her own life to that cancer. And unfortunately, she was not alive uh, when we were able to pass the act, but we we named it in her honor because of everything that she had done to get it through with us. Okay, understood. And, and she so, was a wonderful human being. That's everything I've heard from the interviews I've done about this. Um, yeah. And so now the law got passed 2019. What was the public reaction to it becoming law? And how long did it take from the time it was signed before the pers- first patient filled their prescription? Do you know? I do not know exactly how long it was. I know that there were a lot of legal challenges first. um, And uh, as with any law, there has to be promulgation of rules from those agencies uh, involved with uh, those laws that that needed to occur to make sure that we had a good process and that, um, you know, New Mexicans were were utilizing this law in a way that it made sense, right? So mm-hmm. New, Mexico, New Mexico's law was based off of an amalgamation of other uh, piece, other laws from other states. And we had um, some of the world's experts on this particular subject helping us craft a law that uh, we believe has become the model law uh, in the nation. So, Excellent. Awesome. And also joining, joining us is Dr. Jacqueline O'Neill. She's an internist and head of UNM Hospital's Medical Aid and Dying Program. And Dr. O'Neill, I'd like to ask you a quick question now. Um, so at this point in time, we're discussing the law has passed. Um, now, when did UNMH start its aid and dying program and, and how does it work? Yeah, so um, thank you again for having me. Um, UNMH actually started its program, uh, well, started talking about having a program pretty quickly after the law passed. I would say in August of 2021 um, is sort of shortly after uh, they proposed a protocol for how we would be an opt-in organization, which essentially means we allow our providers to choose to participate or to prescribe. It took us uh, about six months to really get a program underway, so I say we've been really accepting patients since January of 2022. Um, took a little while for information to get out. So I would say we really started seeing patient referrals in April, late March, April of 2022. And since that time um, is when we've really seen a, a constant influx of, of patient referrals. Okay. Okay. And um, right now we actually do have a few comments from listeners already. First, I want to read an email here real quick. This is from a listener, John, from Estancia. He said his stepfather recently passed away at 79 after a fall. Doctors found cancer, and after months of treatment and declining health, he decided to go into hospice, but it was not quick. He writes, This experience highlighted for me the inherent inhumanity in the legal and medical system that says it's acceptable to commit slow suicide by starvation while denying people the right to choose more efficient medically assisted means of ending one's life. So that's... Uh that's that's quite a quite a statement of some strong words there, and we also do have another listener that's on the line right now that I wanted to bring on. It is Dr. Elizabeth Berkey. Um, she is from Albuquerque, and she has a comment. Can you hear me, Dr. Berkey? Yes. Go ahead. What's your comment? I had a dear friend commit suicide two days after Christmas, this past Christmas. She had a congenital birth defect of her spine. And at age 65, the defect had basically taken over her body. She was 
it, her spine was so twisted, and it was not fixable. And despite the heroic efforts of her pain intervention specialist, her friends, everyone who knew her, she could not be fixed, and her pain could not be relieved. And I, from what you read about the New Mexico law, which I strongly support, it, do, it didn't seem as though irredu- irreducible pain was part of the equation for qualifying. And I wonder if you could clarify that for me and for your listeners. Okay. Sure. Well, um, I think I will actually position that to Representative Hockman Vigil. Um, did you hear that question, Representative? I, I think I, I, I believe I did, and that um, having intractable pain uh, is not one of the qualifications for to be able to utilize the act. And um, I know that particular requirement is not in the law. The law focus, focuses more on um, being able to prove if within the next six months you have a term, you a terminal. Uh, illness, or uh, you will be in a position where you are no longer able to maintain life. Um, And so pain is, can be uh, part of a usually terminal, um, terminal, uh, terminal parts of uh, medical care come with intractable pain. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's probably one of the reasons why we didn't include it in the act, but really we focus more on whether or not someone um, is terminal and if they will be alive within the the next six months. So gotcha. I'm sure there, I'm sure uh, Jill or one of the other um, experts on the law can shed more light on this. Absolutely. Yeah. I was going to actually ask if um, Jill, if you, if you knew um, if there was any reason behind that as well. Said you have to have a terminal um, diagnosis with a prognosis of six months or less to live. And in the case we just heard from the caller, um, Elizabeth, uh, that that case would would not be uh, eligible for medical aid and dying. Okay. Yeah. And as Mary Kay Brady said during her interview, there's very stringent requirements for this, um, which is something that uh, I think a lot of uh, people who uh, support the law have have brought up in um, discussions with people who are opposed to the law. Um, And speaking of that, uh, thank you for that, uh, Representative and uh, Dr. Berkey. Um, Next, I want to move to talk a bit more about the opposition to the End of Life Options Act. Um, Chris Shandevel, Senior Counsel with the Alliance for Defending Freedom. Um, first, can you tell me just a little bit about what the Alliance does? Sure. The Alliance Defending Freedom is a uh, nonprofit organization. We're really like a nonprofit uh, law firm. Uh, we advocate uh, in this particular context uh, for the dignity of all human lives up until the point of natural death. So we, um, I'm an attorney on the appellate team. Uh, we litigate cases on behalf of clients uh, ac- across the country. Uh, who are um, either sometimes will come alongside states that are um, defending laws um, that do uh, protect and promote life uh, in all its stages, or sometimes we will defend organizations uh, like the Euthanasia Prevention Coalition, uh, with, which is opposed to assisted suicide, opposed to uh, euthanasia, for example. I actually had the opportunity to uh, argue a case in the Massachusetts Supreme Court uh, just last year involving an alleged right to physician-assisted suicide. So that's a little bit of the work that we do here at ADF. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we also have Dr. Jeffrey Barrows. He is a DO and Senior VP for the Christian Medical Doctors Association. Um, Dr. Barrows, can you tell me a bit about the CMDA? Yeah, thank you, Daniel. Um, the Christian Medical Dental Association is a nationwide uh, association of approximately 13,000 Christian physicians and dentists uh, scattered across the United States in all 50 states. We seek to uh, support students, residents, and physicians uh, in their uh, learning of medicine as well as in their practice of medicine, uh, helping them to practice medicine according to the conscientious values that they have. Uh, We give them guidance in terms of uh, various positions, including on assisted suicide and um, do additionally mission work across the United States and across the world. We have some 
42 different ministries, and we are as well a nonprofit. So uh, happy to be with you all today. Awesome. And thank you very much for that. And, um, you know, just a quick reminder to listeners, we are talking about some very heavy topics today. And if you or a loved one is in crisis or considering suicide, you can always call the National Crisis Line at 988. Um, and, you know, Chris, Dr. Barrows, you know, you guys are joining us like Chris, you're coming from Virginia. Dr. Barrows, you're in Tennessee. And you guys both kind of talked about this a little bit. But, you know, um, I'm just wondering how it is that these two national organizations became involved in a lawsuit out here in New Mexico. Um, where did the lawsuit come from and how did it start? Sure. So we have been, um, like you said, we're a national organization. So we've been watching <clears throat> this issue play out in states across the country. So now as another caller mentioned there are 10 states uh, that have legalized physician assisted suicide plus the District of Columbia. And we have been watching what's been playing out in those states and, and seeing a lot of the negative consequences and a lot of the lessons that we're learning. Uh, and so when we saw uh, New Mexico pass its law and when we read the text of that law uh, and realized uh, just how much it imposes on uh, doctors of good faith, of good conscience, uh, in terms of forcing them to participate in helping their patients uh, take their own lives. Uh, we realized that there were going to be doctors uh, there in New Mexico uh, who could not in good conscience participate in that process, who joined the profession uh, with the interest of helping and healing and not killing. And so we uh, were in contact with uh, Dr. Barrows and his organization and the, and the many, many doctors and health professionals that they represent there in New Mexico who feel like uh, by the, the law in its current form, they're really being forced out of uh, the practice of medicine because of their conscientious beliefs. And so that, that's what spurred us on to, to file this lawsuit on their behalf. And I can let Dr. Barrows uh, add to that answer just based on his perspective. Sure. Yeah, I was actually going to ask Dr. Barrows, would you mind? Yeah, I, I, I would say that uh, <clears throat> the Christian Medical Dental Association recognizes that assisted suicide is harmful. Uh, first, it's harmful for patients because it degrades the dignity of that patient, especially during their end of life, and they're in a very vulnerable position. And I can actually speak to that very personally because I uh, was told about a year ago that I had a terminal illness. Uh, I was told that I had stage four cancer. And uh, at that same time, the oncologist told me that I had progressed beyond his ability to treat me. And even though he was at a relatively large regional hospital. And I'm thankful that I wasn't in New Mexico because I know that according to New Mexico's law, there would been a, have been a requirement for my oncologist to speak to me about assisted suicide. And I was already reeling from the shock of, of being told I have stage four cancer, being told that this doctor can't take care of me. Uh, and, and being told then that one of my options was assisted suicide would have further uh, caused me to lose hope and, and would frankly have been harmful to me. So first of all, I think assisted suicide is harmful to patients. It's harmful to families because it can create dissension within those families because people have different views about the propriety of assisted suicide and other family members can be left with guilt and anger and sadness after a family member takes their own life. Thirdly, it's harmful to medicine. Uh, the, the foundation of medicine is to heal. And, and a critical part of that is the patient physician relationship. So when you introduce the whole topic of assisted suicide, as our members are forced to do now with this law in, in New Mexico, that whole relationship has changed and that trust is changed and, and lost to some degree. So even the American Medical Association recognizes this in their opposition to assisted suicide because they say that it's incompatible with the physician's role as a healer and would be difficult or impossible to control and would impose serious societal risks. So CMBA believes that suffering patients need understanding and sound medical care, not the encouragement and option of killing themselves. And finally, it is harmful to our conscientious healthcare professionals, our members there in New Mexico, because 
Mexico is now forcing our members who are conscientious to inform their patients of the availability of assisted suicide, something they view as evil. It also forces them to engage in an efficient or effective referral uh, by even though they are against assisted suicide. So CNBA's position is rather than expanding access to assisted suicide, let's deal with the training that's necessary in palliative care to deal with some of the issues that have already been brought up, and that is inadequate pain control at the end of life. We know that with complete uh, good palliative care training, uh, pain can be controlled, as well as many of the options that have been discussed so far in this discussion. Well, thank you so much for that, Dr. Barrows. Uh, you know, you brought up a good point about harm and that participating in uh, medical aid and dying is harming um, the patients in several ways. And I'd actually like to pose that question to, we have a couple doctors on the show here today as well, um, in just a minute. But before we do that, uh, we also have a caller who I, I would like to bring on the line right now because I think uh, it, his subject has a lot to do with what you just discussed. This is Tabor from Albuquerque. Tabor, can you hear me? Yes. Excellent. Um, what is your comment this morning? Well, um, I appreciate what's been said, the doctors, and I really appreciate the, uh, the idea of good palliative care um, and pain management for a terminally ill patient. I also appreciate the doctor of osteopath, and I wish there were more doctor of osteopaths in New Mexico. But uh, I'll, I'll just tell you my story. Um, my father was diagnosed with stomach and esophageal cancer at the age of 53, and um, he was given it was terminal. Mm -hmm. He passed away within a year. He was in. Um, quite excruciating pain and I think that he really thought about ending his own life but he didn't because he's Christian and he felt I'm, I just can't do this to my family right. and so um, it came to the end of his life he was um, in the hospital and uh, the family was called in and um, he was going to die very soon and the nurse, I remember the nurse, she said, she talked to me, she says, I want you to have this button here. It's morphine, and you control it. And I did. And I saw him take his last breath. I feel that he went in peace. And I did appreciate that, nurse, I have to say. Mm -hmm. And one thing I want to say also is his father, my grandfather, he was in excruciating pain himself. He had a spinal fusion. He was a hard worker, plumber, um, a, a roughneck in the oil fields. But he took his own life with a shotgun. So I've experienced that kind of stuff. And so I, I feel that I must um, get my own self in order here as far as my health care directive and my living will. I need to get busy with that. Excellent. So for taking my call. Excellent. Thank you, Tabor, so much for that story. And again, like I said, heavy subjects today. If you or a loved one is considering suicide, you can always call the National Crisis Line by dialing 988. Um, now, um, I would like to move on to Representative Hockman V. Hill so she can respond to um, what Chris and Dr. Barrow said. But real quick before I do that, Dr. O'Neill, I'd like to ask you as a doctor, um, do you think that medical practitioners should be able to be exempted from the partaking in medical aid in dying or giving referrals to medical aid in dying? Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I won't comment on the second part of that um, just because I there is sort of an ongoing debate of this. And, and you know, our role at UNMH is really to support um, our providers and our patients mm -hmm. with whatever aspect this law has. Um, so, but as far as do I believe providers should be able to not participate. Yes, absolutely. And, um, you know, there is an immunity clause in the law stating that um, you should not be penalized uh, for choosing to not participate. Uh, we, we here at UNMH um, have even been talking with our psychiatry department about how to best support providers if they in any way feel uncomfortable or distressed by this law and their patients asking for it. Uh, so we do support all of our providers in every aspect. 
Excellent. And Representative Hockman V. Hill, I'd like to come back to you now um, and give you a chance to respond to Chris and Dr. Barrows. Um, and also, I wanted to bring up a bill that you're sponsoring that is an amendment to the End of Life Options Act. Can you explain what House Bill 501 is all about? Precisely, Daniel. So House Bill 501 makes the clarification that for those providers that do not, who have a conscientious objection to speaking to their patients about medical aid and dying, that uh, they have a right to that to uh, that conscientious objection and that they are will not be forced or cannot be forced to speak to a patient about end of life options um, if they meet the requirements of the act. So that's all House Bill 501 does really is just uh, make that that clarification crystal clear in the law. Awesome. And uh, thank you so much for that. Um, And the amendment as worded is, and I quote, a person shall not be subject to criminal liability for refusing for reasons of conscience to participate in medical aid in dying in any way, which includes refusing to provide information on medical aid in dying to a patient and refusing to refer a patient to any entity or individual who is able and willing to assist the patient in obtaining medical aid in dying. With how the law is written, it sounds like doctors will be able to remain silent, not ever mention medical aid and dying is an option if they'd like, but what if asked directly? They obviously can't lie, so would they just be forced to say, I don't participate in medical aid and dying and walk out without giving further information? I mean, I, I don't like to speculate on, you know, what could happen or, or, or you know, what doctors would, would choose to say um, if they will not participate in um in giving their patients that type of information. But uh, I, if we are going to speculate, I'm sure that they would probably say something to that effect that, you know, I I'm, I'm, will not give information on medical aid and dying to you and hopefully refer them to someone else who will or, a, or to, a, you know, another, another resource of, of that information. Right. Perfect. And, and Chris, I'd like to ask you now, does the, does the amendment satisfy your concerns? So we certainly appreciate what appears to be a good faith effort to address the fact that the law in its current form uh, has real constitutional problems in terms of requiring doctors to violate uh, their medical code of ethics and and their uh, conscience convictions um, by referring patients participating in that process uh, for assisted suicide. So um, I have reviewed the amendment. I I am encouraged that there does appear to be a good faith attempt uh, to address some of those concerns. We're, of course, going to reserve judgment uh, until we see the final the final amendment, the final bill text. Uh, I will just note that there are some, still some provisions that were left in uh, in the amendment that I saw that still give us um, cause for concern. So you read from subsection A that added that uh, conscience protection provision in point three. There's still language in subsection C uh, that requires conscience, um, conscientious objectors, uh, healthcare providers, um, to refer those individuals uh, to, to doctors who will prescribe those uh, lethal dosages of drugs uh, for those patients to, to take their own lives. So uh, there, there appear to still be some conflicts uh, within the text, even as with the amendment that was proposed. So for, for that reason, we're, we, we'd like to see that fixed. Uh, some other changes we'd like to see made still. Um, but again, we do appreciate uh, the apparent recognition that there are constitutional problems with the law as written. And Dr. Barrows, as a prescriber and a rep of the CMDA, do you support Representative Hockman v. Hill's amendment? Well, I want to echo Chris's uh, comment tonight. First of all, I want to thank Dr. Uh, Representative Day Hockman v. Hill uh, in their efforts uh, to address our concerns. So we very much appreciate that. And what I have heard this morning is, in fact, very encouraging. Um, uh, however, I am not an attorney, and so I will, of course, defer our final decision uh, to our excellent attorneys at ADF, including Chris and others. Um, but uh, I, am, I am encouraged, and again, I want to say very appreciative of the efforts that are being made. Well, thank you so much for that. So unfortunately, I do have to stop you there because we do need to take a break. Um, We're talking about New Mexico's medical aid and dying law. When we come back, we'll hear more from the doctor who runs UNMH's medical aid and dying program. Representative Hockman V. Hill has a committee meeting to run to. And Chris, you also have to prepare for a meeting, correct? So I just wanted to say thank you to now to both of you for being on the show. Representative Hockman V. Hill, you have a good day at work up up there in the roundhouse. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And thanks to everybody who participated uh, this morning. It was a really good conversation. Thank you so much. 
And then, Chris, same to you. I hope the weather treats you nice out there in Virginia today. Thanks, Daniel. I've got some extra time, so I'll probably stick around in case you have any more questions for me or just listen, if not. No, that sounds great. Yeah, perfect. Thank you so much for that. Well, this is Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUNM. I'm Daniel Montano. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Let's Talk New Mexico on KUNM. We are looking at medical aid in dying, and there's still time to call in this morning at 505-277-5866, or you can shoot us a tweet using the hashtag Let's Talk NM, all one word. Um, before we move on to more questions for our guests, we do already have another email from Venny. It says when they went to a recent Medicare wellness visit and she said she has a DNR and didn't want any measures taken to prolong her life. The doctor there said of medical aid in dying forcefully several times, they will starve you to death. She's concerned that while health systems or doctors may choose not to participate in aid in dying, it's wrong to speak so harshly to older and vulnerable patients who might benefit from referral to others with knowledge of the options. Um, so I guess actually, uh, since you're still with us, Chris, what would you say to someone who would say that? Did you, did you have a chance to hear that full question? I did. Okay. Sure. And, and I guess what I would, what I would say to someone, you know, asking a question like that, I mean, obviously I can't speak to, uh, the bedside manner of that particular doctor. And obviously we want all patients to be treated with, with care and compassion and respect, uh, from, from their medical professionals. Um, but one of the primary concerns that, that our clients have with the law in its current form um, is the fact that these so-called stringent requirements, these so-called uh, safeguards, what we've seen in other states and in, in countries like Canada that have legalized assisted suicide um, is that they just don't work and they just don't last. And so to, to give one example of that, so um, the law assumes that doctors uh, will, will treat that conversation with the care and respect um, that it deserves and that they'll be 100% accurate in assessing you know, how much time that person has left to live, whether the person is mentally competent, whether they're fully informed and capable of making that decision. And, and the reality is, as good as our doctors are, uh, they're going to make mistakes. And, and when mistakes are made, um, people are going to die who otherwise would have chosen to live if they had known that they had more time to live than they realized, who otherwise would have chosen to live if they'd gotten the treatment they need for mental health issues, who otherwise would have been cho- chosen to live if they haven't been pressured or coerced by their family members. These are all things that doctors can't possibly predict uh, perfectly. And it just shows that once you change the line from respecting life up into the point of natural death and allow doctors and even force doctors to participate in that process sometime earlier in that person's life, uh, there's just no way to put an adequate safeguard to make sure that the the vulnerable, um, those who are disabled, uh, the poor in our society um, are properly uh, treated with respect and protected. Thank you for that, Chris. Yeah. And, you know, we are talking obviously now more about like the the law as it's actually enacted in real life. And with that, I do want to speak with Dr. Jacqueline O'Neill a bit more. Um, I'll have some questions for you in just a sec. But first, I do want to get to another caller we have. um, It's Rebecca. Um, Rebecca, can you hear me? Rebecca, are you there? Here I am. Awesome. Thank you so much. I understand you have a comment that you'd like to share, a story you'd like to share? I do. I have a story. Um, uh, I want to thank KUNM New Mexico for having the show on. I'd like to thank Representative Debbie Armstrong for that work she did. May she rest in peace. And to thank Representative Hoffman V. Hill. Um, so our story is that my mom was um, had been ill for quite some time. She was in hospice care, and she had another... Um, like set back in hospice. She may have even had to be hospitalized, even though she was in hospice and she was in a lot of pain and us siblings, her children had heard about the MAID program in New Mexico. So we gathered the information, told her about it, had some um, family conversations about it. She did her own spiritual journey with this and and consulted with her her priest. She's Christian. She was Christian. Um, She consulted with friends. You know, it was a small circle, but we talked about it a lot. And she, in the end, decided to have the MAID, um, which they were very clear in saying it was not suicide. That's a very clear um, 
Mm-hmm. Part of the conversation we had with the agency that we went with, who were wonderful. Um, and I'd say the experience we had overall, it's been going to be six months now, was so deeply spiritual and so beautiful. She chose the time of her passing. We were able to all gather. People were able to fly in. And we surrounded her. We filled her room with flowers. We um, said prayers. She said prayers. We read poetry. It was, we have become closer as a family since that happened. And um, I think we continue, of course, to miss her a lot and sort of process her passing. But the main thing is that it provided ease and grace to her passing. She went with a deep faith of what's on the other side. She went with um, Christian prayers. And so I just want to speak to that experience. And um, I think that's enough for my short story at this time. Well, thank you so much for your story, Rebecca. That's uh, that's a very... uh appreciate that you bring that up. Um, I did want to get to Jill and, uh, and to uh, Dr. O'Neill, but before we do that, we have uh, so many people calling in right now that I'd like to get to some of our callers. Um, I'd like to bring Dr. Janet Blanchard on next. She is in Albuquerque. Um, Dr. Jan- Blanchard, what is your, uh, what is your comment? Um, I'm an internal medicine physician. Mm-hmm. Can you hear me? Uh, yes, I can hear you. Sorry, yeah, you're you're on the air, Dr. Blanchard. What is your comment? Yeah, I'm an internal medicine physician. Yes, and uh, you said that you wanted to make a comment about uh, medical aid in yeah. dying. Yes, you're on the yeah. air. What is your comment? Thank you. Listening, or I've been practicing medicine for a long time, 30 years, and in the last four years I've had two patients uh, use the medical aid in dying program. And it was a beautiful experience for them and their families, who obviously I was able to talk to after the passing of the patient. And I think people need to realize it is not a program where a patient just walks in a door and walks out in 30 minutes with medications to uh, end their life. It's a very deliberate process where the patient works with their primary care and then the primary care refers them to a hospice physician who practices medical aid in dying. So there's many steps, much discussion and conversation about it. Mm -hmm. So it's not something that can happen quickly because of a misdiagnosis or somebody's just stressed at the time. Um, But I really do support this program. I think it's a blessing to patients who unfortunately contract illnesses that um, that do cause much pain and destruction to their body. Right. Well, thank you so much for that comment, Dr. Blanchard. And that is a good point. And I'm sure Dr. O'Neill could back that up. The, this is a process that is very deliberate. It's not something even with, though there's only a 48-hour period for waiting for the medication, it takes longer for the whole process to... Yes, these are very, very time-consuming evaluations. Um, and you know, our providers at UNM right now that are doing these are doing them all volunteer uh, on their own time in addition to their clinical work, um, which speaks both to um, their desire to be involved in this program um, as well as the benefit I believe they perceive from it. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for that. And um, we have one more caller for today. Um, we're going to be real quick, though, Linda, because the show is about to end. Linda, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Excellent. And uh, what is your comment today? So I'm actually a physician, too. I'm a pediatric oncologist, and I've had a couple of family members who have um, passed away in the last year, actually. Uh, and uh, I just wanted to say that um, I, I wish uh, physicians had a little bit more leeway and protection to practice medicine the way they would like to do it rather than calling it assisted suicide. Or I feel like in pediatric oncology, we know our patients so well that we are able to do these sort of things with IV medications, with uh, keeping kids comfortable at the end. Uh, We also take care of a lot of young adults. 
I I don't um, I don't see that in adult hospice. I think adult hospice is lacking. Mm-hmm. In my experience, um, they give you pills to crush up and put under someone's tongue when they aren't even aren't even uh, can't swallow and they're not um, they're completely obtunded. I mean that mm-hmm. makes no sense. So uh, that's just my two cents on it. I think hospice in adult medicine needs to be revamped. Well. Thank you so much for that, Linda. And um, we are coming up on the end of the show, though, so I do want to, first of all, say thank you to everybody who did join us today. Obviously, we had Dr. Jacqueline O'Neill here in studio, uh, Chris Chandevel, Dr. Jeffrey Barrows, um, Representative Day hawkman Hill, Mary Kay Brady, thank you so much for the interview. And then Jill, if you're still over there, Miss Jill Von Austin with, uh, with End of Life Options New Mexico, thank you as well. Um, now, let's. Uh, we had a great conversation today. Now, let's keep that conversation going. You can share your ideas on Twitter using the hashtag Let's Talk NM on Facebook, or you can search for KUNM Radio or email Let's Talk at KUNM.org. If you miss part of the show, you can stream it online at KUNM.org, or you can subscribe to our podcasts on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Next week on Let's Talk New Mexico, we're going to get an update on the state's progress under the Yazi Martinez lawsuit to meet the needs of New Mexico students. Our engineer today is Marino Spencer. Our intrepid reporter and Morning Edition host Bryce Dix handled the phones today. Taylor Velasquez live tweeted the show and our news director, Ever Stalwart, Megan Kamrick, produced the show this week along with Cave Movahead. Personal thanks out to both of them for all the support this week. I'm Daniel Montano. This is Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUNM. This week on This American Life, when Chandrai Kumanika heard that in Savannah, Georgia, they do ghost tours of the city that actually include the brutal reality of slavery, he had to go see it for himself. He thought, white Southerners are talking about this stuff? What he saw was and was not that. Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Spirits and Scoundrels Tour. That's this week. Sundays at 4 on KUNM. The largest gathering of indigenous nerds is back. Indigipop X starts up in Oklahoma City with comics, native science fiction, celebrities, and everything pop culture. We'll talk with the organizers to get a preview of what to expect this year. That's all coming up on the next Native America Calling. Weekday mornings at 11 on KUNM. This is 89.9 KUNM and KUNM HD, Albuquerque, Santa Fe, broadcasting from the University of New Mexico, also broadcasting on KRRT, Royo Seco Taos, KRRE, Las Vegas, KRAR, Española, and KBOM, Socorro, with translators K220EM, Naizi, K220AV, Taos, K213ET, Eagle Nest, and K216CU, Cuba, online at KUNM.org.